And we are live from the Empire of Lies, on oasis of truth and free speech in the vast barren wasteland that is the Biden administration. I'm Lee Strahan with guest host Jason Goodman. This is the backstory. And hey, Jason, how you doing today? I'm great, Lee. You're sounding really strong. Well, that's ironic. Because you oh. know what's going on here. But oh, no. Plus your well, heart. You sound good. <laughs> well, we have a great show today. Straight out of Moscow, Mark Zavoda is on in the first hour. In the second great. hour, Sputnik correspondent Wyatt Reed is in Mexico. He's headed down to Colombia. And we'll talk about all the stuff that's going on in Central and South America and how it affects the U.S. And we're taking your calls, 202-521-1320. Jason, pray tell. Yes. What's the name of the show? This is the backstory. Great job, Jason. Thank you. So they postponed. There's going to be another January 6th hearing tomorrow. Thank God for that. Now, by the way, Command Central, do we have two clips? Rod, what do, what do we have for clips on apps? The, the Ted Cruz one? Yes? Yeah, it's just it's just a clip of uh, Ted Cruz questioning the FBI agent about Ray Epps. Okay, this is from months ago, Jason. You probably heard this months ago. But mm-hmm. I feel this should be front and center in a January 6th hearing. Let's play yeah. Ted Cruz asking a spokesman for the FBI, I think the head. I'm not sure who this is. But it's a high official, a high muckety-muck with the FBI. Let's listen to their questions and when asked whether any FBI agents, this should be an easy question. Someone from the FBI should be able to answer no to the question, did anyone from the FBI provoke January 6th, right, Jason? Right. They should be able to say that. That should be easy. But listen to this clip. And this is from months ago, but it should be front and center right now. Play it. To the FBI. How many FBI agents or confidential informants actively participated in the events of January 6th? Sir, I'm sure you can appreciate that I can't go into the specifics of sources and methods. Uh, Did any FBI agents any FBI or agents confidential or informants confidential actively participate in the events of January 6th? Yes or no? Yes or no? Sir, I can't, I can't answer that. Did any FBI agents any or confidential FBI informants agents commit crimes of violence on January 6th? 6th. I can't answer that, sir. Did any FBI agents any F- or FBI informants actively encourage and incite crimes of violence on January 6th? 6th. Sir, I can't answer that. Ms. Sadburn, Ms. who is Ray Epps? I'm aware of the individual, sir. Uh, I don't have the specific background to him. Well, there are a lot of well, people who are understandably very concerned about Mr. Epps. On the night of January 5th, 2021, Epps wandered around the crowd that had gathered. And there's video out there of him chanting, tomorrow, we need to get into the Capitol, into the Capitol. This was strange behavior, so strange that the crowd began chanting, fed, 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 fed. Ms. Sandburn, was Ray Epps a fed? 
Sir, I cannot answer that question. The next day, the next day, on January 6th, Mr. Epps is seen whispering to a person, and five seconds later, five seconds after he's whispering to a person, that same person begins to forcibly tear down the barricades. Did Mr. Epps urge them to tear down the barricades? Sir, similar to the other answers, I cannot answer that. So about five days ago, Newsweek, one of the top news publications in the country, in the Empire of Lies, called that a conspiracy theory and accused Marjorie Taylor Greene, a staying member of Congress, of engaging in conspiracy theory about Ray Epps. Are you hearing a conspiracy theory there, Jason? Well, I think there's a lot of facts that need to be answered. I mean, you know, this concept of a conspiracy theory, what is that even? It has no legal definition, no force and effect. Ted Cruz is a lawyer. He's asking very pointed questions to which there are answers. And irrespective of what the FBI says, because a lawyer for the FBI would simply say that the FBI representative made it clear that she was not going to answer positive or negative any questions related to the FBI and will whitewash any answer she gives in that instance, attributing it to that. The bottom line remains, why is Ray Epps not in jail for participating in the riot when so many other people who did even less than he did are, why is Ray Epps not a public witness where he can be asked questions? And the bigger question overall, I would say, Lee, is that you know they're putting this thing on television. I, I mean, if they wanna make it a documentary or some sort of narrative entertainment, they're certainly free to do that. To pre but presenting it as this quasi-legal proceeding that takes place in the chamber of Congress with the senators and whoever is there, the representatives, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, without the people accused being represented, uh, represented, without the due process that every American is afforded, this is not only a sham with regard to January 6th, this is one of the most anti-American things to ever proceed in this country that I'm aware of. Yes, and I'm going to say it again. Marcia Jill Green, a sitting member of Congress, and I know they don't like her, but she's a member of Congress. She's an elected right. representative. Bribes this Ray Epps issue. And Newsweek, a week ago, said she was engaged in conspiracy theory. First off, about the FBI sources and methods, to hell with your sources and methods. If yeah. people from the FBI are engaging in violence, that's not a source or a method. Not a right? valid one. That not is certainly valid not. One. And what's she really answering? When she's saying, I can't discuss it, what's she really saying? Yes. To me, she's saying yes, exactly. The problem is, in a court of law, they would observe this as her abstaining from answering, and it's undetermined. Because, you see, Ted Cruz understands what's going on. He's asking every single question the way a lawyer would to get her to give that response, because if and when there is a jury, you know, Ted Cruz there, he's appealing to the court of public opinion in the same way that this, you know, kangaroo court January 6th committee is attempting to, but they are using propaganda techniques you and I spoke about, the parallel editing, 
the off-screen non-diegetic sound. These are narrative movie-making techniques, not the way you're allowed to present evidence in court. It's an edited movie that they showed. And Jason, I'm going to step away from the microphone for a minute. Talk about the sure. danger you see, uh, this danger to democracy. They talk a lot yeah. about the danger to democracy. I would say this is a danger to democracy. Would you agree? Yes. Uh, not only do I agree, Lee, you have encapsulated it. That statement right there is so important for people to contemplate and to understand. Because for Donald Trump to say everybody should peacefully go march over to the Capitol and have your voices heard, that is absolutely within his First Amendment rights to say. Everybody's been making the comparison to the stuff that Schumer said about uh, going and you know threatening Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, and it's a valid comparison. But it's likely that even what Schumer said will be found by a court to fall into the realm of political hyper hyperbole and et cetera. But uh, for them to try to position this as, oh, Donald Trump incited violence, it, it, it's just absolutely absurd. And the worst thing that's happening right here is this kangaroo proceeding, you know, Adam Schiff, once again, is right in the middle of all of this. This guy was spearheading the impeachment of Trump while he was president. And this is technically still an impeachment of Donald Trump in the way that, you know, you can impeach a statement or something like that. This is hammering the nail further into the board just to make sure that they can come up with some sort of something. I guarantee, I can see this right now. They are going to come out of this hearing with some sort of criminal referral, some sort of recommendation that they will use more of the corrupt FBI to create some kind of an investigation so that when Donald Trump announces, they'll just start saying, oh no, he can't run for president because he's under criminal investigation. And then people will say, well, wait a minute, Hillary Clinton was under investigation. I'll say, well, that was an IRS investigation, it's something else. And it won't be true what they say, but they'll say it loud enough and frequently enough and in the news enough that people will hear it and think that it could be true. And as long as they say it long enough to make it politically undesirable for the Republicans to not nominate someone else, they're just going to keep saying it. And the goal of what's going on right now is to prevent Trump from running in 2024. Well, and also the Republicans have got on their January 6th committee. Adam Ginzinger, well, Liz Cheney, yeah. aren't going to bring up this statement by the FBI person. No. Who can't say whether FBI agents engaged in violent activities and encouraged the insurrection. Knows that? Well, there was no yes, Republican on the committee who will bring us up. They've deliberately kept the Republicans off the committee, right? Yes, they have, and that makes it an invalid committee because normally the Republican minority is allowed to nominate their members who participate in a committee, not you know the most anti-Trump you know two people dangling on the edge who nominate themselves. And there's another important point that we need to remind people of, Lee. It's not like this notion of the FBI using confidential informants to do illegal things is coming out of the blue. It was just recently found by a federal judge that these four sort of mentally deficient individuals who were on trial for allegedly attempting to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer 
the finding in the court was that the FBI masterminded that plan and manipulated these individuals to make it appear that they were plotting that. And there's a long break, history break, Jason. Let's take a short break because we got Mark Sobota from Moscow standing by. Yeah. Ray, talk to us on lace in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Let's go to break. Russia after this short break on the backstory. Lee Stranahan on the backstory with guest host Jason Goodman today from Crowdsource of Truth. In the Empire of Lies, we're on the radio, 105.5 FM, AM 1390, in the capital of the Empire of Lies. Joining us now from Moscow, straight out of Moscow, Russia, geopolitical analyst and commentator Mark Slobota. Hey, Mark, how you doing? Lee, Jason, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure it's to be on the backstory. It's great to have you on, as usual. You're a font of information, Jason. I mean, uh, Mark, so is Jason, but I was, <laughs> you know, talking yeah. about you. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, Mark, I've heard yesterday was the heaviest day of shelling in Donetsk by Ukraine. And it seemed to me, from what I saw, they're attacking civilians in Donetsk. What do you know about that, Mark? Yeah, okay, so uh, the Kiev regime bombing Donetsk is, of course, nothing new. They've been doing it for eight years, eight long years since they seized power in Kiev in 2014 and uh, attempted to extend their rule uh, to the rest of the country, which the people of, of Donbass uh, declined to, to accept. Um, now... The Kiev regime has, since it's been bombing Donetsk for eight years, it knows exactly what it's hitting in that city, right? I mean, it's <laughs> it, it there. There's no chance of of any mistaken targets, um, and it uh, unleashed a salvo on the center of Donetsk city. Um, a oh, from from all counts, uh, they used uh, Grad uh, multiple launch rocket systems, and they also used. Um, uh, 155 millimeter um, howitzer shells, uh, which uh, all indication are are from NATO supplied um, artillery guns, uh, artillery shells, artillery guns to fire them, um, and uh, the result of that was a direct hit on a maternity hospital uh, and on a market. There are no military targets in the center of Donetsk city. This was. Uh, it's also rather interesting that they chose to hit this because just at the end of last week, Kiev regime officials were saying that they are uh, all but out of ammunition, particularly artillery shells. Uh, so the fact that they chose to use such a large salvo of what little they have left, not say at the military front line or anything, but firing into the center of Donetsk city says that this was an act of, of political terror. And I think that's the best way to describe it. And hours after this hit, Zelensky then uh, made a speech 
uh, broadcast speech where he promised, uh, it, it seems clear, threatened, that in Ukrainian cities which do not fly the uh, Kiev regime's flag, uh, that he he says, tell your friends the Ukrainian army will be coming, uh, and he specifically, of course, then mentioned you know the the pie in the sky of Kiev regime rhetoric, uh, Donbas uh, and Crimea. Uh, so this this seems pretty clear uh, what this was. In in the attack, some uh, last I saw, some five people were killed, including an 11 year old child, um, and. Um, uh, some uh, up to 40 people injured, although um, I think it is rather lucky that the people in the maternity hospital when the shelling first started got into the basement. Otherwise, the death toll could now, have been Mark, much higher. You're, you're a vet, although a regretful one, right? You, you're not you're not especially proud of him. Yes. Your military service, I mean, right? No. Admonish people don't to not say thank you for your service. That's why I said that. If I said, no, Mark, thank you for your service, you wouldn't like that, correct? Uh, no, I participated in actions that included the carving up of Serbia and the bombing campaign against Iraq in between the two wars, uh, which a lot of people don't know about. And uh, I, I see nothing that was either legal or commendable. Yes. So I just want did. to make sure that I was being clear that I'm not making that up, that you're 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 a regretful bet, but as a vet, you know a little about military strategy. And as an analyst, what is a possible military strategy behind bombing Donetsk by Ukraine? How is it going to help them in this conflict with Russia? Is there any military sense to it whatsoever? No, I mean, not from any strategic sense, of course. It is, like I said, an act of political terror. It is meant to terrify East Ukrainians. Uh, to to uh, a part of the problem they're having is with the large numbers of desertions, and as uh, Russian forces move forward, liberate the areas from these far right battalions and the Kiev regime's military forces. Uh, lots of people in East Ukraine, where uh, you know uh, uh, there is a large percentage of the, the Ukraine's Russian ethnic population, and an even larger percentage of its Russian-speaking population, which was actually the majority before 2014, um, and um, there's. Lots of people, lots of officials um, that are uh, perfectly willing to work with uh, the Russian and the allied Donbass governments uh, and uh, seem to uh, not mind seeing the tail end of the regime that seized power in Kiev in 2014. And this, I believe, is meant to intimidate them. To 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 uh, the speech coming right after this heavy shelling is no coincidence, and and he is essentially threatening, uh, you know, that uh, those who side with uh, the invaders, as he terms it, will will face justice, as he terms it, uh, and he has spoken many times about the Kiev regime's policy uh, against collaborators.
uh, that is a frequent topic of his speech because there are so many of them. I mean, he has banned 15 political parties, uh, mostly from East Ukraine, over their links to Russia. He has arrested the two biggest opposition party leaders. He has shut down essentially all of the media of uh, critical of his regime in the country and declared a unified information policy where there is literally essentially a ministry of truth that decides what is going out 24-7 on all the channels all the time. Uh, this this is, is the type of regime. And with people in East Ukraine, you know, starting to think, well, hey, maybe the Russians are going to stay this time uh, and, uh, you know, we can <laughs> live, uh, you know, we escape this regime of terror for the last eight years. Uh, he's promising them that that the Kiev regime military and forces Mark, will be wrong, back. Am I wrong? I'm going to guess Russian military strategy, and I could be wrong, but I'm going to guess that Russia's going to obliterate these Ukrainian artilleries that fired on them. Russia will not let this stand, will they? No way, right? That is that is complicated, um, and I would say that um, there is one Kiev regime. You know, across the area of the Donbas that the regime controls, they have erected fortifications for eight years, hardened concrete bunkers, uh, layers on layers of them, with you know. Um, uh, you know, places to park their artillery and tanks where they're shielded and can be fired from and so on. Uh, and one of the largest of these redoubts is in a uh, small city town uh, just to the west, to the, a little bit to the northwest of Donetsk City, and that is at Zayevka. And um, it is probably the toughest knot of Kiev regime military uh, in the entire country. And that is the area where they are still firing from that they can hit Donetsk City with artillery. Elsewhere, you've seen large amounts of territory uh, in the administrative region of the of the Donetsk uh, and Lugansk administrative regions, you know, uh, be enveloped and and uh, uh, liberated and so forth. But this one particular nut that they've held on to outside Donetsk City is is rather hard to hit. And of course, it is unfortunate. But they are firing from uh, an urban area, which means any retaliation uh, would be causing not only massive infrastructure damage, but large amounts of people that they are effectively using as human shields. Technically, of course, that is a war crime, but the Western media and governments have ignored that constant tactic, which the Kiev regime even openly admitted to at the end of last week. Uh, and, you know, because that's who's on their side. So they they, they ignore the, the fact that this is a war crime. Um, and any Russian retaliation would uh, has to be very carefully calculated. Now, the, the, the plan, of course, is to circle, envelop this whole area. Right now, the focus is on Severodonetsk and Slavyansk, uh, but then eventually to come around at Vyavka from behind where there aren't the fortifications so that there is a much lower toll in Donbass uh, and uh, allied Russian lives uh, than it would be from continuing to try to take this redoubt now, on Mark, head Mark, what's on. this I hear about 
Ukrainians starting to conscript women into their military. Have you heard that? Is that true, that they're starting to draft women? Okay, so even in peacetime, Ukraine is a majority conscript army, right? Uh, all, all male citizens uh, are supposed to serve a, a year and a half in the armed forces. That was removed temporarily under Yanukovych, and then, and then um, Zelensky has brought it back. Um, so the right now, no males between the ages of 16 and 60 are allowed to leave the country. Right. They all have to go and register to serve, you know, uh, in the military. Uh, it's, it's mass forced conscription. And they announced that people would be called up in four waves of mass mobilization. They're now on the third wave, by the way, um, since the end of last month. Um, women uh, of certain skill sets, which seem rather expansive, including librarians, psychologists, uh, journalists, are also subject uh, to conscription. Not all women, but women that fill uh, certain skill sets. And the numbers I have seen is that of the mobilized forces, some 15% are women. Now, this being Pride Month and Ukraine being a modern Western state, do you know if they're conscripting trans women? I, I, I don't recognize the description. Yeah, of, I mean, Lee is Ukraine making a joke, obviously, kidding. but they but they have that I, unicorn I it, battalion yeah, where they that. made a whole news piece about Mark, yeah, is have, it your experience in Russia that the average person on the street shares the views of Americans that LGBTQ and particularly trans ideology should be championed? I mean, in my experience, Ukraine I, generally I rejects homosexuality. I think that's most Americans, Jason. I think it's well, Democrats. Uh, the media, right, exactly. Right, and the media. No, it, it's clear that the majority in Russia and Ukraine do not subscribe to, you know, the the LGBT uh, QRT uh, ideology, this uh, woke ideology. They are both socially conservative city uh, countries, and we have seen, you know, these far right fighters that are armed and uh, trained and funded by the Kiev regime, which means, uh, you know, only. Not even often one degree of remove because often U.S. military have trained them directly. They've trained these far-right battalions uh, in the country, which routinely, whenever the Kiev regime holds their their one-day annual uh, – it wasn't held this year uh, – but whenever they've held uh, this annual parade to, to please uh, Western elites, they have – it's a very small thing affair, has to be shielded by police because what has been termed – by the Western press as this regime's best fighters assail those parades physically. Um, uh, so to try to characterize Ukraine as some type of LGBT-friendly state, uh, yeah, I mean, currently the, 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 the president's office of the administration uh, you know, uh, tries to put on a good show as, you know, they're trying to appeal to the West. But if you even listen to other officials within the administration speaking in Ukrainian or Russian, as they often do to their own people, of course, they're saying some extremely very different things. This is a PR episode. Um, and uh, just like this uh, ridiculous mythical unicorn battalion or anything, this is just part of the information war, which they are winning handily, at least on 
English language, you know, uh, information spaces owned by, uh, you know, uh, companies uh, that are uh, affiliated with the U.S. state, you know, such as Facebook and Twitter and, and uh, you know, YouTube and so forth. I mean, they, they, they own their own info ground, right? Not so much on any info ground that isn't owned by, you know, essentially by them or isn't in English, but that aspect of the info war, they're, they're, they're definitely winning. If only that extended to the battlefield and to the economic war, well, then, you know, it might be a very different story, but it's not. So it just leads to delusion and a constant in feedback effect of insanity of their own propaganda affecting their own rhetoric and policies, which is, you know, just drawing this out and making it ever bloodier well, let's than with it you has to be. Economic battle for a second, Mark, since you're bringing up the woman who's the head of the Russian Central Bank recently said she looked at the numbers and she was pinching herself. She was stunned by how not badly it's going. Things are going very well in Russia. You're seeing deflation. In fact, did you see that statement by the woman from the Russian Central Bank? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it was about a week ago that, or well, about two weeks ago, that the inflation uh, dropped, the weekly inflation dropped to zero, and and has not appreciated since then. Uh, you know, there were there were a, a period of three months where uh, inflation, you know, was up uh, probably above ten percent, um, and I mean. Of course, it was doing the same thing at the same time in Europe and the United States because of you know the global blowback effects of the U.S. economic war via sanctions. Uh, but that is it. Um, the ruble, which Jen Psaki assured us was destroyed, right? The <laughs> Russian economy is destroyed. The ruble is worthless, right? The ruble uh, is stronger now than it was at the beginning of the intervention. In fact, it's stronger now than it has been yeah. in the last five years. They're worried now that the ruble is too strong and will right. be affecting Russian exports. Uh, so they're trying to cool that down. The ruble for the last uh, uh, six weeks to two months has been the best performing currency in the world, uh, gaining some uh, 11, 12 percent on the U.S. dollar uh, from the beginning of the intervention. So it's uh, yeah, that that's not quite going the way they intended to. And of course, uh, the, the not only the the general inflation, uh, you know, but uh, but also the cost of energy in particular uh, in both the U.S. Uh, in Europe is, you know, I, I, I don't need to tell you about it because you're living through it. We're not. So, you know, no, good luck and, with and that. And is gas still, um, <laughs> is gas still we're, about we're 250 a gallon in, in Moscow? Yeah, I, I I have not seen a big I, – I honestly, I don't drive. There's really no reason to drive in Moscow with such an incredible public transportation system. So I haven't driven – You're since, making Lee jealous. Since, well, for two decades <laughs> now. Um, cost of going – yeah. <laughs> on the metro. What does public yeah. transit cost yeah. in Moscow, Mark? Yeah. Public transit costs. What does what, what, does what cost? I'm sorry. Oh, um, so like, like 
Yeah, it's less than a dollar to go anywhere in the this the city. I mean, uh, uh, for for a certain like students and and uh, you know elderly, it's it's far less than that. But you can also get monthly rates that reduce it down. Like a single trip will cost you less than wow. I guess about Here's fifty cents. Here's an interesting cents. fact, guys. Uh, Reuters reports that the all-time high for the ruble against the euro was 58.75 rubles to purchase one euro. Right now, it's at 60.92. So it's very close. I mean, it's within pennies of its all-time high. It's very strong. And it's been at this level for basically the duration of the war. Yeah. Um, like I said, the, the, the most serious effects here have been inflation, you know, inflation on foodstuffs that uh, – the same inflation rate or much worse is being seen in Europe or the United States and, of course, much of the rest of the world. As the price of energy goes up, the cost of distribution and production goes up, which means you know the, the cost of everything in the world is increasing. Plus, you know, Russia is not only such a huge supplier of, of oil and gas and coal and uranium and electricity, but it's also the world's biggest supplier of wheat and several other grains. So effectively, what the U.S. is trying to do is remove the world's biggest support of food from the world. And you can imagine the effects and African Union countries, uh, which face, you know, millions facing famine, starvation and mass political instability, have been begging the United States to remove its sanctions, which inhibit uh, you know, financial transactions between Russia and, and the rest of the world, because the U.S. Uh, control, along with Europe, controls the global financial uh, uh, architecture, uh, and they've weaponized it. Uh, so their goal is, is you know, to stop Russia from making any fin financial transactions anywhere. They have, of course, not have been completely successful, but uh, they they have definitely made it more difficult and raised costs uh, to to get food. They've made it. They they're trying to prevent Russian cargo ships from being able to get insured, which means they can't you know, uh, leave port. And they're also making it impossible for Russian ships to, um, uh, you know, dock in any European ports and threatening secondary sanctions against other countries in the world, like these poor African countries where they might port. Uh, so, uh, it's, uh, you know, a rather insidious process of of trying to starve the world to no, Mark, I've said before you're an incisive geopolitical analyst. So let me bring up a topic that I think you'll agree is complex. Ready? Turkey or Turchia, the new name. <laughs> would you agree with the complex of yeah. would you agree the complex <laughs> of Turchia or Turkey and Erdogan is complex? And how do you see Turkey's role currently? In geopolitics, yeah. Well, I mean, the Erdogan regime has long been playing Russia and the West, and to a lesser degree, the Muslim world and Israel and so forth, against each other because of the incredible importance of their geopolitical position, right, on the borders between uh, uh, Europe and Asia. 
um, you know, controlling the Dardanelles, the access to the Black Sea, plus, you know, regularly used by the U.S. as a military platform to project U.S. military force with all the bases the U.S. has there into the rest of the Middle East. It's it's an essential geopolitical pivot point. And Erdogan routinely plays Russia and the West and these other powers off each other to get what he wants. And he's very good at it. And neither the Russia nor the U.S., uh, you know, tries to push Erdogan too far so that he doesn't go slide permanently into the other camp. Um, and he has played that exceedingly well, although I would think that if it wasn't for the current range of tensions, the one thing they might agree on is they both want the SOB gone. Uh, but uh, that's that's not for the here and now. Right now, he is demanding huge concessions, uh, ostensibly uh, from Finland and Sweden over their relationship with uh, 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 political refugees, Kurds, uh, from uh, Turkey that are there and are there in large numbers. They even have parliamentary positions in Sweden. Uh, he said – Turkey refers to it as supporting terrorism. Uh, but he's actually under the table asking for a lot more. He's asking for the U.S. to remove sanctions that they put on him for purchasing Russia's uh, S-400 air defense system. He wants back into the F-16 package. He wants uh, further uh, economic packages and so forth. So he is demanding a lot in order to approve Finland and Sweden's ascension into NATO, which the U.S. and NATO want very much right now because um, – First of all, they want to make a political statement to Russia that NATO will expand no matter what you do, uh, and we will surround you. And two, uh, because of uh, you know the Russian intervention, Finland and Sweden's whose public had been against it swung strongly in favor of it. Although in Sweden it's just barely over fifty percent, so they want to take advantage of that now before there's a chance it could swing back. And Turkey knows this, Erdogan knows this, and is 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 seizing the opportunity to demand everything he can because NATO requires unanimity to to admit a, a new members like this. And and of course, the, comp the, the the situation between Russia and Ukraine is also very complicated. Uh, Erdogan is selling uh, uh, the Kiev regime advanced Turkish combat drones, mm. the TB2 Bayraktars, which are actually somehow drone became uh, Turkey became a drone power, um, and they uh, have uh, Mark, been those are you know, fairly effective drones that are sort of OEM through yeah. Turkey. Those, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, 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 they of course have been, you know, um, yeah. uh, shall we say rebranded by Turkey, uh, in own products. Um, with, but isn't with, that weird, you know, some though? slight alteration. I mean, isn't that, that essentially sure like a definitely. five eyes country or a NATO country yeah. just giving them that? Sorry for you. That again, there's a complicated relationship that Turkey has also with Israel, where it ostensibly plays a, you know, a, a guardian of, of, of the Muslim uh, you know, peoples of the Middle East. At the same time, it's deeply security state in bed uh, with with Israel. So there, there is a very complicated relationship there with Russia as well. It uh, has closed off the Dardanelles Straits to ships from both Russia uh, and 
um, Ukraine, ostensibly not that Ukraine has any that would be making the passage, uh, but at the same time, it has refused to participate in sanctions against Russia because it gets nearly all of its energy from Russia and Russian tourists and uh, uh, are essential to the Turkish economy as well as the sale of Turkish produce in Russia. It's a, a very big part of their economy. So I describe the relationship. This has been going on for several years now with Russia between between Russia and Turkey, between Putin and Erdogan. You have to remember that they are at war with each other, have been in Syria, in Libya, uh, through through proxies in, in uh, uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia. But at the same time, they continue economic relations. I figure it – imagine Putin and Erdogan are waltzing together, hand in hand, across a chessboard, smiling, looking each other deep in their, in their eyes in a loving relationship as they hold daggers at each other's backs. That, that's the relationship between Russia and Turkey. And do you think – how do you think this is going to work out with NATO, with Sweden and Finland in particular? Do you think he's going to get what he wants or do you think he's going to stop – yeah. Oh, he's not going to get everything he wants, but of course he makes excessive demands and is willing to walk back from them. Most of it will be done under the table, but I have no doubt that eventually they will cave and give him at least enough of what he wants to satisfy him, and eventually Finland and Sweden will, will get and the pass. How upset do you think Russia really is about Finland and Sweden? Finland and Sweden have been de facto NATO members for over a decade now. That that's the reality, right? They regular first of all, they all have NATO standard equipment. All of their equipment comes from other either uh, military equipment from other EU states who are already part of NATO or the US. Um, they regularly do military drills with NATO. NATO holds military drills on their territory. They share military intelligence and sig signals intelligence uh, on Russia uh, with with the West. Russia has long assumed that if there's any, for some reason, a conventional conflict with NATO, that Finland and Sweden would, would be working. Uh, so it's not such a big thing. On the other hand, Finland does have a, a rather large border with Russia. It's not good terrain. It's it's subarctic swamp. It's a it's a mess. It's not exactly an invasion route, but it is airspace. And giving Finland and Sweden on their own, just like say Poland or anything else, is not something that Russia regards as a military threat. But the possibility of the U.S. putting air bases and missile systems in Finland. That is a cause of concern. So Finland and Sweden joining NATO just at that, no big deal. What that could lead to down the road, and if the U.S. and U.K. start positioning uh, you know, uh, air bases, aircraft missile systems there, then that would be an entirely different story, and Russia would definitely have now to Now, we started to see in the West uh, – Blame getting placed by the Biden administration on Zelensky. They're saying he wouldn't listen going into this thing, for instance. And we're starting to see the blame game played. Do you think... Yeah. Damage control. Well, well, damage right. control. And do you think <laughs> we're going to start seeing open tensions between Ukraine and their supporter states, the United States and Great Britain? 
do you think it's going to exacerbate in the coming weeks? Mark? Um, I don't think it's going to exaggerate hugely. I mean, Zelensky is a, a product of uh, the oligarch Kolomoisky, right? He's he's his uh, uh, puppet, his figurehead. And Kolomoisky, of course, doesn't have a great relationship with the U.S. and the EU, but it's the geopolitical that is most important. So they look past us. They would have much preferred Poroshenko or, or perhaps Poroshenko's defense minister for the next president, but they got stuck with Zelensky and that's who they have to deal with. And he's been troublesome. He hasn't always done exactly what they wanted. And he's gotten rather arrogant about making very public demands from them in terms of funding, admittance to all the, you know, the cool clubs of NATO and the EU, of weapons, ever shrill demanding cries for weapons and, and a sense of entitlement and so forth. To the point that I mean the uh Kiev regime's ambassador to Germany regularly I mean insults German politicians to their faces. It's 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 pretty amazing uh, that they feel pretty entitled right now. Um, but I don't think you're going to see any great political break. But at the same time, I mean, if even the New York Times was taking out an editorial just a couple of weeks ago saying that the U.S., the Biden needs to tell Zelensky that – you know, we're only going to give you so much money, so much weapons. There's only so much we're going to go to bat to you. And you should come to terms because, you know, we're not going to win this war for you. We probably couldn't win this war for you. Certainly not a conventional conflict uh, that's going on there now, uh, not without reconfiguring the entire U.S. global military away from the Asia Pacific, you know, where it's supposed to be pivoting to. Um, so... Um, I expect, you know, uh, some little sniping back and forth and Washington will be attempting the intelligence departments you see attempting to shift some of the blame for their propaganda about how badly the Kiev regime has been losing and how much they've been saying the opposite, um, you know, to, to shift some of that blame uh, to Kiev uh, instead of Langley or, you know, uh, the White House. But uh, on the surface, uh, you know, that is mostly about PR damage control. It's not going to change any overall support or geopolitical orientation. Group, uh, Jason, any question about Mark Sabota in Moscow? I'm wondering how much it costs to rent an apartment in Moscow because everything in the United States is going south economically. And I mean, I imagine the police in Moscow would not sit around and allow people to illegally sell drugs and products on the street or be on their cell phone while criminals roam around in public parts, parks threatening people. Is that presumption correct or incorrect, Mark? What's the what's the status on the street? Um I mean, it's not. It's not like there's not drug sales in in uh, in Moscow, right? It's not like there's not drugs. It's not like there's not crime. But I mean, I, I've seen some of. I mean, I, I I grew up not too far from Philly, so I I've I've seen some of what you're hinting at, and something like that. Forgive me no. for interrupting, but what I'm getting of at course is this: not because Philly. Uh, I don't know how long have you lived in Moscow. 
Uh, well, I've lived, I've been out of the U.S. either in okay. Moscow or London. So in the past two years, numbers. and most notably in the past year, if I go to Washington Square Park, it is overrun with criminals violating posted signs, riding bicycles, skateboards, selling pot on tables that they've set up. And I'm not against marijuana, but it is illegal to sell it out in the open like that. And certainly riding a bike. If you went to the park in Moscow right now, are there people riding around doing things that are pub publicly posted you're not allowed to do, openly selling drugs, multiple vendors, and no police in sight? Or is that not the way it is? No, I mean, not, no, that's not the way. I mean, not certainly far. I mean, maybe there's If you set up a table to openly sell like marijuana but, in a yeah, public yeah. park in Moscow, how long do you reasonably expect no, you could be there before no, getting of arrested? Course, of course, yeah. Five minutes? I don't right. know. Less than an hour. But Well, I wouldn't say five minutes, but yeah. No you would sensible person would do that. You'd go to jail. Yeah. 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 An average two-room uh, U.S. standard apartment in the center of the Moscow near the metro ranges between 800 and $950 a month. Lee, when, when are we going? <laughs> and this is, a, this is one of... This is I one. Of, this is one of the world's capitals. I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, it's 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 it's, you know, it's it's not by any means you know Bulgaria or or you know, it's it's a fairly modern, enormous, dynamic uh, city. It's not for everyone's tastes, that's for sure. Uh, but I but I certainly like it, and the cost of living is simply much less than in the West. There's no question for that. My Wi-Fi is yeah. incredible and I pay dirt for it. So, uh, <laughs> and I get free Wi-Fi on the Metro or right. on any public transportation. And if you and wanted to start well a business, too, so. you could, that's right? A, as an that's American. A bonus. Yeah, they've, oh, well, I'm, first of all, I'm not an American. I, I actually uh, emigrated a, a few years ago. I'm, I, I became a Russian citizen. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you can open up businesses here. They, there is plenty of bureaucracy in Russia, but they even the you know the indexes have given the credit for at least slashing that red tape to a manageable and level. Mark, you in mentioned the years. internet. We hear about censorship in Russia sometimes. What do you have access to for the internet, Mark? Oh, did we lose Mark? They don't like him talking sounds, about this. I'm sure. I'm sure there was just a drop. That's ironic. It is. I mean, Lee, the point is we got a free market there in Moscow. And as you look around at some of the economic and quality of life conditions, I, I mean, I never thought I would think this based on growing up in the United States in the 70s and 80s. But it seems like living in Moscow might be a lot more pleasant than living in New York City right now. No, I agree. I've thought that for a long time. That, And, and also, I think you're freer to be, I, I know this from living here, you're freer to tell the truth yeah. in Russia, right? Because Seems like uh, it. Well, yes. No one's been taken down for reporting the truth about Russiagate in Russia. Right. But you can't say the same thing here. And, you know, but yeah, I agree with you. And everything I see about the lifestyle stuff is just as nice. In fact, as you mentioned, there's less crime. 
Yeah. I don't think there's any equivalent of what's happening in Walgreens or CVS stores in San Francisco where people just go into the store with a bag and empty off a shelf. You've seen that yeah. stuff, right, Jason? I've seen plenty of that. And even just going around New York City, you, you really cannot leave your apartment even in the middle of the day on a sunny day and walk around without being accosted by seemingly dangerous people. I mean, it just happened now. I went to the post office, some guy almost spit on me. Why? I, I don't know. He was hanging outside the pizza place. I think it was an accident, but you know, he like made that sound like he's clearing his throat and he turned my direction. And if I hadn't, and he spat, and if I hadn't, been alert and aware and literally run to get out of the way, he would have spat right on me. And I mean, look, that could happen anywhere. But the point is, for the past several months, there has been an increasing tension in New York City that I believe is fueled by the police and the district attorney and their refusal to enforce the laws. This, this word gets out very quickly that you can get away with doing things. And I mean, they see it. Uh, some some report I was watching mentioned how the United States, or somebody's opinion, how the United States was the greatest country in the world, and the access to justice, the justice system is the greatest in the world, and people come from around the world to the United States to get justice. Lee, you and I have been jammed up in situations in the justice system where I'm still in it, you know, five years and counting, where people are able to manipulate the justice system and harm people with it. And when you look at what's going on with the January 6th commission, that is an abomination of justice. And, you know, that is going on right now. So it's very disingenuous. It's, you know, the United States saying, we are the greatest country in the world. It's like one of these 300-pound women walking around in Lululemon yoga pants thinking she looks fit. That's wrong. Yes, and and I think that, I mean, my experience personally with the justice system and from reporting on it, there are huge problems. The justice yes. system in the United States does not work. And anyone right. who thinks it does has not been involved with it. I agree. You agree? And one other thing, I agree completely. I want to bring to your attention that just happened while we're on air, or maybe slightly earlier. So the January... Sixth Committee has abruptly, you mentioned it earlier, chosen to postpone their hearing for tomorrow. Do we know why they did that? They said they were always on a flexible schedule, a fluid schedule, they said, but they ah. moved it because apparently scheduling conflicts. But I don't think this is going as well for them as they'd hoped. I don't think it's convincing yeah. Americans of the justness of their cause. And I think yeah. with this coming simultaneously with very bad economic news in the country, highest gas prices ever, over $5 a gallon across the country. Yeah. And big inflation number, highest inflation in 40 years, once again. Mm -hmm. I think that the January 6th hearing timing is very bad. <laughs> You're right. It couldn't be worse. And I mean, you know, this is, I've sort of coined a phrase called stipulated reality. You know, when you're involved in these civil cases, one of the first things they want to do is have both sides lay out these sort of stipulated facts, agreed upon, I'm making air quotes, facts. 
And there's ways that crafty lawyers can manipulate that. Like they give you a bunch of stipulated facts that if you don't contest them or if you miss it or you miss a deadline or you don't understand something, that becomes the stipulated fact in the case. Even if there is an Jason, empirical Jason, Yeah. Jason, let me stop you. We're gonna pick yeah. this just we have to go to a break. And we'll sure. pick up this discussion. I, I think it's a problem across society. I'll talk about yes. it after the break on Backstory. the second hour from the empire of lies the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines i'm lee stranahan and our guest co-host today is jason goodman from crowdsource of truth this is the backstory always a very good conversation with mark sabota coming to us from moscow where it's midnight he should get to sleep so yeah Great conversation with Mark. Do you agree? Absolutely. He always has good insights, and it's important to speak to somebody who's there, particularly an American, because you know he's he's he knows the sensibilities of Americans here. I didn't know that he had served in the army. That was interesting. Yes. And this hour, Sputnik correspondent Wyatt Reed is in Mexico. He's headed to Colombia, and we'll talk about a lot of stuff. Like Juan Juan Guaido. Did you see Juan Guaido get pushed around in Venezuela? Uh, well, didn't they try to drone strike him or something? No, no, no. People in a room don't like him in Venezuela, and they push ah. him around. We'll talk about that and other stuff with Ry Reed this hour. And taking your calls, 202-521-1320. Jason, say the name of the show, please. This is the backstory. That's satisfying, the thud. Yeah, The sound it effects, is. right, it is. So I'll pick up on what you were saying earlier. And it was something I heard today, and I've been thinking about it all day. Alexander McCorris had... Gonzalo Lear on. And one point they made on their show, a minor point, but I thought it was profound, was that part of the problem in this country is that we have, I'll take the career I've apparently chosen for myself journalism, right? So I'm a yeah. journalist. If you think about what skills, make a successful journalist commercially, I don't possess any of them. I'm good at things well, like, I... no, 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 I, I'm, I'm making a point. Being a successful, commercially successful journalist does not require being good at research or being good at figuring out truth from falsity. I could right. be making it's a like lot, being handsome and going on TV. Yeah, yeah. Right. If I want to make money, 
I'm not doing it the right way. Correct. <laughs> no. Yes. And you know what I'm Selling saying, Jason. Out. I know. I know. I do. I do. You mean going with the flow, going along to get along, being a commercial corporate journalist. Exactly right. The people who work for the New York Times or the Washington Post or CNN or Fox News, whoever, the mainstream media, they make more money. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. And they sometimes make a lot more money, huge Millions. amounts of money. Yeah. Now, what's the skill set that they have that got them there? It's not research. It's not being able to tell where the news is going. What skill set got them to their vaunted positions? Think, think about it. Mm, I don't know. Go to college for broadcast journalism and get an internship somewhere and look the part or make friends with somebody who likes you. I don't know. There's a lot of weird things. These types it's, of things are generally not meritocracy. No, I, th I, think, I think it's easy to figure out, though. It's not yeah. even look the part because Brian Stelter does not look the part for anything. Right. Say the right things. Go along right. with the conclusions that others have reached. Have no uh, original position whatsoever. On foreign policy, say the same things everybody else in the mainstream media says. Do you see my point, yeah. Jason? Yeah, yeah. It's it's getting along, saying the right things. Right. There, there are some ugly MFs in journalism, but they say well, the right things. And let me just modify slightly what I'm saying. Not necessarily about being handsome, but taking Brian Steltler is a cleaned up in an expensive suit version of a, quote, regular-looking guy. They don't want everybody to look like, you know, Brad Pitt or something like that because that's totally unrealistic. But, you know, he's not showing up on the news wearing a jersey or whatever. You know, it's an expensive suit. His hair is done. He's just had a facial or something like that, and his eyebrows are plucked, and he's there being whatever version of himself that he needs to be to be sold on corporate. He's a product. Well, so 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 – I'm going to uh, change the, what I've said slightly, re-say re it. I think sure. knowing what you have to say to get along, going with not the yeah. truth but the consensus reality yes. makes you a success. Oh, great? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's true across politics. Even in medicine, you're seeing that. COVID showed us that the people who say the consensus opinion, right, are mm -hmm. the successful ones financially. Yeah. Does that yeah. make sense? And going, well, going against so, the consensus is suicide. So we've incentivized going with the consensus, which is not based on reality. Right. And my broad point is that that being incentivized has created a generation of stupid people in positions of power. <laughs> yes. I, yes. I, I mean, I don't mean it's an insult. You're right. I mean, you're right. You see what I'm saying? Knowing, knowing yeah. what's right. And that's why you say you or anyone, I'm not picking a new Jason, 
But people look at it and go, why didn't they see that this war was going to lead to economic problems for the U.S.? Because seeing that would require some degree of thinking outside the consensus box. Yeah. You see what I'm yes. saying? Oh, absolutely. And the people in positions of power don't have that skill set. Mm-hmm. You see my point? I agree. Absolutely. And, we have a whole generation now who are confused. And who's who coming up with the right conclusion puts them at odds with everybody else so they don't do it. They learn right. not to think outside the box. Let's go to phone calls. I see Tarif and Al Keller. We'll take them in that order. 202-521-1320. Tarif, thanks for holding. What is on your mind? Hey, how y'all gentlemen doing? I have three comments. First, I'd like to say free German science. Um, the crypto market is taking a plunge, and I'm reading reports that it might go under 21,000. It might be in a range from 6,000 to 16,000. But over time, you have crypto miners come to United States to try to mine the crypto, and over time it's going to go back up. But right now, it's taking, it's, it's losing a whole bunch. A lot of people are starting to dump it. My second- Therese, let me say, you're, you're exactly right. Crypto yesterday took a drubbing, a, about a, million, a trillion dollar loss, and is at a historic low. Go ahead, Tarif. Okay. Oh, I have to add another comment. I forgot about this, too. Along with that, overnight, I found out, uh, I was reading some economic, I mean, looking at some economic people talking, to, um, I think the housing rate went up to like 10.8% or something like that, and that's not good. Um, Jake Paul, my third comment, I'm going to have another comment after this. Jake Paul came out in uh, three days ago and basically let Joe Biden have it. Now, Jake Paul had anywhere from 2 million followers on Twitter, 20 million on Instagram, and 20 million on uh, YouTube. And then he, he also know other social media people. Basically came out and said that ha- the highest gas prices, worst inflation, plummeting crypto prices, highest rent prices ever. And, you know, he he's very inf- um, uh, inf- uh, fusural. You know what I'm saying? He's, he, he got a lot of people. Yeah. Boxer Jake Paul. Yeah, Boxer Jake Paul. And my last comment, this is important too, is that um <clears throat> this um report came out, person pr- um, printed something, well, tweeted out something. Uh, Xi Jinping signed a de- uh, declarative allowing the non-military use of armed forces. According to the Radio Free Asian media outlet, Beijing might be preparing for a special operation in Taiwan. And also, they have reports that I've been reading on Telegram of a lot of troop movement in southern China with people, you know, talking about, too. So, yeah, that's my um, my comments for today. Thank you all for taking my call. Well, Tarif, before you go, why, why would moving crypto mining to America help cryptocurrency? I was listening to different economists like Tom Lugongo, Tom Lugongo and other um, economists. Um, you have these large corporations is trying to purge the system of retail people like us. And I think what they was trying to explain that they was the ones dumping the massive amounts of money 
to get rid of the average person, then so it can drive down the price, so they can come back in there and buy that, you know, between sixteen and six thousand dollars. Right. Basically, get rid of as many people as possible. Right. All right. Well, you know, one other interesting note. Because I've said before, I've never understood crypto, and it seems to me to be a fiat currency with no fiat. It's a fiat currency <laughs> that's backed by nothing. And well, as an yeah. old school libertarian, I'm in favor of currency being backed by actual things. I hear you. I hear you. One it's other bracket. interesting thing to note, Lee, both the S&P 500 and the Dow Jones Industrial Average were down today. And oddly, Twitter closed slightly up. So I think a lot of these things are manipulated by outside forces that we regular people – I mean, listen, I don't claim to be any kind of economic expert at all. I'm only looking at these stocks because I'm interested in what's going on with Twitter relative to Elon Musk. He announced today – and this strikes me as something that would um, – I, I don't know. He announced today that he's going to participate – or Twitter announced that he's going to participate in some sort of an employee town hall. And they revealed these internal messages that employees are still very upset about this concept of Elon Musk taking over. There's all kinds of questions about whether it will or will not happen. It's just weird to me that stocks are going down, crypto is going down, inflation is going up, yet Twitter, which is pretty troubled, closes up. Well, I think things are starting to get real. It seems to me that it looks like the transition is actually happening and so we'll see what happens, but I'm I'm going to watch that call that's coming up with Elon Musk and Twitter employees, yeah, carefully, and we'll see what happens. Two hundred two five two one thirty twenty. Owl Killer, you're on. Hey, Owl Killer. Uh, Snick and Boy from Little Monsters. We're both. We're all three of us are uh, have seen Little Monsters, the two bad guys at the end of it. That, that's what Brian Souther looks like to me with a receding hairline. <laughs> that's cruel, Alcoa. I approve. <laughs> no, as as I, I love uh, when you have uh, Jason on because like he gives, he's super sharp and in depth with his stuff, but he gives like a regular person's perspective rather than some like polished up media version where he's trying where you know everything comes out too scripted. He's literally like engaged with your entire show. I, I appreciate when you have them on. Um, I just Thank you. want to say, as sure as we're sitting, as, as sure as we're talking right now, Trump's going to be indicted somehow. Um, and, you know, we, we know it's garbage. But again, you talk about how people are, it, we're living in an alternate universe where it do, they see what they want to see. And it's like, we know what we see and we, we know our opinions of it. But it, it it's, Definitely an alternate universe as far as um, what is being um, what's being portrayed in the media, and specifically what's coming from the left. Um, and I, I almost I thought I actually thought that President Trump was going to move on President Biden and have him indicted right before the election, and I'm I was almost scared about it um, because I'm like that may give him time to replace him with somebody like a, a Bernie Sanders, which would really in a legit election would give President Trump trouble. Um, yeah. But I, I guarantee you they're going to do the same thing. I, I guarantee you, like just like Jason said, as soon as he announces, 
they'll indict him and they'll smear him in the media, and he can't go anywhere to talk. He, he can have true social all he wants. He's not outside of maybe two shows, three shows on Fox. He's going to have nowhere to talk and get his, uh, his campaign platform out. And I don't think they'll cover him like they did in 2016, where where you where they were one of the ratings. They've accepted their low ratings now, as long as they can keep um, the MAGA movement. As long as they can keep the MAGA movement in. Um, Suppressed. They 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 don't care about how bad the ratings are. They're being, um, you know, they're they're being financed from outside so they from outside sources where it, it it doesn't matter. They're just there to take up space, and so nobody else can get their opinion out. Um, yeah. I do I do want to say though you're, you're definitely right. We are seeing the transition now. As far as crypto goes, it's definitely a fiat currency. But the idea behind it is. Hey, they're going to have their own banker currency. We're going to have our own, you know, let us have our own thing. But it's not going to matter if George Soros owns all the Bitcoin. You know, it's it, that that's really what is going on. So if somebody like that's what they're doing, they're trying to purge it of like in small time individual people owning a piece here, a piece there, where they're just going to purge us out. But, but let me just interrupt and say for one second, Al Killer, that part of my issue with crypto. Is this more something you invest in than something? It's too hard to use crypto for to buy stuff. Small purchases. Do you know what I'm getting at, Jason? You don't use crypto yeah. in place of currency. Exactly. They call it cryptocurrency, but we haven't really seen any effective use of it as a day-to-day -day transactional thing. People are using it as a store of value. But just one other point I wanted to make about what Owl Killer is saying, I agree with him primarily, but I think that they are going to attempt to get this indictment on Trump before he announces and, and just use it to block him from even being able to announce, to just make the statement that he can't run for president because he's under this particular type of indictment, which will differ in some way than the investigation into Hillary Clinton. And no matter the legal deficiencies of the claim, They'll cling to it until they die, like they are rushing. Well, no, Jason, the statement I made yesterday, and let me let you and Al Keller comment on it. I said yeah. I think indicting Trump could backfire on the Democrats. I think not Trump running, but someone like DeSantis running because they block Trump is right. worse for Joe Biden than Trump running. I agree. But they're the experts at slamming the door in their own face. Just like sanctioning Russia has brought the ruble to new highs, they're likely to do the stupidest, most short-sighted, most illegal, corrupt thing they could possibly do. And they are the gang that can't shoot straight, so it's going to smack them in the face. By the way, I would prefer Ron DeSantis in 2024 to Donald Trump. Also, did you see Lauren Bowler, the representative uh – Lauren Bowler filed articles of impeachment against Biden. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yes, I'm in favor of that. Also, in a completely shallow question, do you think Lauren Bowler's glasses make her look cuter? Yeah, she does have that look of like the movie about the girl who's a nerd for the whole movie. And then at the end, she shows up at the prom and everyone's like, oh, my God. And they basically just like take her glasses off and do her hair and put her in a dress. Al Keller, what say you? I um. I'm gonna have, you know, I, w I wasn't really looking at her like that. I'm gonna have to get a better look. Uh, I'll tell you guys tomorrow. <laughs> One other comment that Owl Killer had, 
about Trump using Truth Social as his platform, I am already detecting huge problems with Truth Social along the exact same lines, but pointed in the opposite direction uh, as Twitter. And what I'm getting at is, for instance, Crowdsource the Truth has been on Truth Social since February. And a lot of people who are into alternative social media platforms are aware of and watch and like Crowdsource the Truth. I've been on there for months at CS the Truth, um, truthing our videos and everything like that. 54 followers. Now, another personality, Tracy Beans, just using her as an example, because a lot of people follow both of us, she's been on there also since February, 85,000.9, almost 86,000 followers in the same amount of time. That is such a huge disparity, uh, disparity. And I'm not saying I'm more popular than she is or whatever, but there's some multiple there. Even if she was 10 times more popular than me, I don't think she's 40,000 times or 20,000 times more popular. It feels like something's going on on Truth Social that's Devin Nunes just boosting the people he likes and deranking the people he doesn't like in the same exact well, let me way say that Twitter does. Else about Truth Social. And Jason, you know a thing or two about web development, right? Yeah. Yeah. Not you, not saying you're a coder. But I know, you know how, how difficult it is, though. Right. Okay, right. So I could go on any number of sites like Fiverr or yep. like whatever. I could go on GitHub or whatever. How much yeah. would it cost me to buy a clone of Twitter? Yeah, I mean, using you know, I don't have... Yeah, I don't have that figure at my fingertips, but you're right. Many of them exist, and actually Alex Jones even accused Truth Social of using some open source thing as its base, which is potentially an okay way to develop something. It's certainly not an A-list yes. way to do it. But but, but I'm it's, saying— It's, it's crap if, software if I said is what you, you're getting if, at. If I said <laughs> you could go and buy for a couple thousand bucks a clone of Twitter— I agree. With, right. And Trump yeah. has that kind of money. They could right. have bought essentially a feature clone of Twitter that mm -hmm. some guy in India's program, because they always right. are. I'm not I'm not knocking it. And they could have hired yeah. the Indian guy who programmed it to be on call for tech right. support, right? For not I think much they money. could have done it. I mean, again, I, 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 it's a dangerous thing to get into predicting how much money, but you're right. It's certainly an amount of money that Donald Trump and the investors in the Trump media, whatever this thing is, could have accessed. I think the better question is, setting all the costs and everything aside, why would you launch this before it's ready to work on a web browser and before it's ready to work with Android? I mean, they kneecapped themselves. It's ridiculous how this has been launched. Yes, it's very poor web development. That's all very I'm saying. Poor. And I, I've yeah. seen it for a couple thousand bucks or less. Yeah. And, and that, my point is, it's thousands of dollars, not millions. Right, Jason? At that point, it's safe to say. I agree with that, Lee. And the other thing is, you know, you don't go hiring some 50 or 60-year-old uh, person who has experience with dairy farming and being in government to be the CEO of your software company. You need someone who knows 
how this type of stuff works. I mean, what experience does Devin Nunes have in developing anything like this? You know, you said this early on. Would have been you and I both know Brad Parscale. He would have been right. a better choice because at least Much Brad has a tech background. Right. Correct. And he would know the people to hire. He would know how to work with a development team like that. I mean, even the types of decisions that we are talking about. Has Devin Nunes ever run anything other than an office in Congress and a bunch of fraudulent lawsuits? I don't think so. And, and lousy job at that. Yeah. Al Killer, great call. 202-521-1320. Jeremy, thanks for waiting. You're on the air. What's on your mind? so much. Uh, I don't know. Did you all hear about uh, Eric of Blackwater infamy, but also working for Chinese state interests in Xinjiang and in Africa for resources on behalf of his new frontier services group, just announced the launch of his upcoming alleged privacy uh, technology uh, from the heart of the Israeli security state uh, on oh God. Bannon's <laughs> hear about that. I didn't, but I'm looking now. On Bannon, says, what? Because I know, I know Eric Prince has worked with C. Bannon. I know it personally for years. So what are you saying Bannon's involvement is? Well, yeah, Bannon just uh, gave him his big launch with the uh, discount codes for the whole uh, War Room audience. Uh, John Brisson at We've Read the Documents just did a very good breakdown uh, on that. And uh, so that's one thing. And I was wondering, too, whether you and your audience were familiar with the second Trump Tower meeting in August of 2016 that featured um, Eric Prince, but also uh, convicted uh, child pornography aficionado and child rapist George Nader, who was working be on behalf of Netanyahu and Mohammed bin Zayed as a back channel from Trump to Putin. Uh, and then Donald Trump Jr., along with uh, Israeli intelligence frontman Joel Zamel in Trump Tower in August 2016, where they were professing that along with the highest levels of the Kremlin, but that the UAE and the Saudis and the Israelis were going to work in order to install Donald Trump in the White House in 2016. I haven't heard about that at all. And I wouldn't call it a second term tower meeting because I don't think it, it has anything to do with the first term tower meeting. Although the meeting may have been in Trump Tower, I don't see any connection between that meeting and the second one. So I, 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 don't, I don't know anything about the meeting, though. The reason I brought it up is because I see the January 6th um, mission as really the final stage of what the deputy attorney, former deputy attorney general Rod Rosenstein was actually in charge of limiting the full transnational scope of the Trump uh, collusion uh, uh, in, uh, investigation via Mueller called landing the plane. Remember, this is Rod Rosenstein who went straight out of the government to work for a law firm and then worked on legal representation on behalf of the Israeli intelligence uh, NSO group, one that supplied the, uh, soft, the cyber weapons to help uh, identify and assassinate uh, Jamal Khashoggi and dozens of journalists and human rights activists around the world. And so my sense of it is that I'm, what I'm hearing from the so-called alternative media, which in many cases obviously is just, just as controlled as corporate media, for example, state-sponsored media, or even the sort of the background of Breitbart, right, Lee, in terms of being formed at the table with Netanyahu, uh, 
with Andrew Breitbart alongside uh, Gateway Pundits, uh, Jim Hoff, Nation Cover. What is this? Uh, wait, wait, I missed that. You're saying Breitbart was formed with Netanyahu? Yeah, you haven't seen the picture of it. They're all around the table in Israel. Well, well uh, okay, well, you, I, you have seen a picture. I knew Andrew Breitbart. So let's compare that, shall we? You look at the picture, and I have personal experience. I know how Breitbart was formed. And despite the fact there's a picture with Andrew Breitbart and Netanyahu, I know how Breitbart was formed. So if you want to ask questions about it, ask questions about it. If you want to tell me you saw a picture, I'm not impressed. I see the picture, but it's just a picture of them together. It doesn't necessarily tell us what is happening. They're in a room having a meeting. Yes, I know how what, Andrew formed. What was the role of Larry, Larry Soloff? Is that his name? Yes. I don't know who he is. Larry. He's Andrew's best friend. They grew up next to each other. Yeah, and the purpose of the meeting, as stated, was that there needed to be more Israeli um, um, kind uh, media on the right. And it's interesting, the, the, the formation of Breitbart in the, in the run-up to preserve Netanyahu and Putin interests that included Brexit, Breitbart took a key role in working So you're saying you're Andrew Breitbart— I, and, and again, we got to move on because why read is online. But it's irritating to me because it's shallow. You're seeing a picture. You're implying that, and there's no question, Andrew was a Zionist. Andrew Breitbart was mm -hmm. a Zionist. But he was also an honest journalist. And I know what Andrew knew at the time he died. And at the time he died, I think I, I was a Zionist at one point. Jason? And when you say you, Zionist, you mean what? That you just support Israel, right? You're not— Right. I, yeah. I had a shallow understanding of Zionism. Yeah. Yeah, and, I never declared myself to be a Zionist. I, I think that Israel has as much of a right to exist as any other country that showed up somewhere and said, we like this place, we're going to take your stuff, which includes the country that I'm in right now. So it's, it's a much more complex issue. But I knew how Andrew formed Breitbart— he formed it because he was fired by Huffington Post. They paid him a settlement, and it was obvious Andrew was going to have his own site. It was obvious. That's the career path he was on, and that was his yeah, goal. I, I share your dislike so for people who have one photo of two people together and say, oh, well, here's this whole story that that photo tells us. I, I don't know that that photo yes. tells us anything. Especially when I know for a fact because multiple people on both sides of that story told me what happened. But let's go to a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk to the great Splendid correspondent, Wyatt Reed. Looking forward to this. Jason, put the bass in your voice. This is the backstory. .5 FM, AM 1390. The backstory with guest co-host Jason Goodman from Crowdsource of Truth. And now joining us from Mexico, Splendid correspondent Wyatt Reed. Hey, Wyatt, how you doing? I'm good, Lee. How about yourself? I'm okay. Now, Wyatt, let me give you a chance to expand yourself as an artiste. 
<laughs> okay? You ready? I'm going to allow you okay. to do spoken spoken word performance for us to be a painter of syllables. Jason has not seen the footage of Juan Guaido getting shoved in a room. So try to paint us a picture of what that footage, we have your voice to do. Paint on that canvas what happened with Juan Guaido, the supposed leader of Venezuela, although he's not, right? He's only leader of Venezuela because the U.S. says he was and introduced him at a State of the Union address. But explain what happened with Juan Guaido for someone like Jason who did not see it, right? Okay, well, let me set the scene a little bit. You are in the bougiest restaurant you've ever been in. Um, some waiter uh, who's way too poor to be talking to you is offering you some kind of food that you don't even really know what it is. Um, and all of a sudden, some uh, working-class hooligan breaks in and accuses uh, the U.S. State Department-backed uh, so-called interim president of Venezuela of not being the legitimate president uh, and wants to give him a piece of, a mind, of his mind. Uh, if you can imagine for a second the nerve of, of you know, these, like, uh, working-class Venezuelans to, to uh, be upset and to disrupt this fine dining experience of uh, would-be Venezuelan puppet Juan Guaido. I say would-be because he is, uh, despite three years of desperately trying, still uh, not managed to turn himself uh, Cinderella-style into the president of Venezuela. Uh, so you have to use your imagination a little bit. Um, but this is kind of the whole thing that they've been doing from the get-go, right, is it's an imaginary presidency. Uh, and what happened was um, normal people showed up, and they popped the bubble a little bit. Um, and these people living in this bizarre fantasy world where uh, because the U.S. and a handful of European countries decided um, all of a sudden uh, Venezuela is supposed to pretend that uh, Juan Guaido, a political nobody who three-quarters of the country hadn't heard of before he declared himself president, um, now you have to pretend that this guy is somehow your president, right? Uh, so that's kind of what happened. As you can imagine, uh, people were less than thrilled with him. Guaido uh, was pushed, shoved, screamed at, had things thrown at him. I saw a number of chairs in the air. Uh, I don't know how many made contact. Uh, there's one pretty uh pretty uh it's it's worth watching wow. it's worth seeing it's worth watching oh, the no, video. I'm looking at it now actually it's crazy it looks like he's going to get killed i can't believe this went on well you can't it's it's hard to imagine something happening like something like that happening to a head of state um that's right. usually not what happens to heads of state they have presidential security uh they are able to prevent people from doing that sort of thing if you if you're a real president that is I mean, this is like a fight at BBQ. It looks like, you know, somebody's sending back the blooming onion and the whole place is erupting. Yeah, I was going to say, it's like Dairy Queen, Dairy Queen environment yeah. in a right. steakhouse setting. Unbelievable. The part I like is towards the end, the woman walking next to him. And I think the right word is haranguing. The woman <laughs> is like an ex-girlfriend who's pissed off about something, haranguing him right next to him in his face. Pointing at him. You see her, Jason? <laughs> yes. I, I didn't realize it was the girlfriend. I'm not listening with the sound. I'm just, I mean, it, ju it just looks like a giant fight about to break out. Like, 
like, like White is saying, any any kind of uh, video we've seen from some angry customer at Wendy's to Dairy Queen to all these viral fights that go online. Yes, it's very personal. And I, I talked to Wyatt a couple of days ago, and we were laughing about it because it, Wyatt, you're having trouble describing Wong Guaido, and I was too, because he's nothing. He's someone who's been declared president but he wasn't elected, suddenly U.S. officials started talking about him as president, right? So it's hard to know what to call him officially, isn't it? Well, and that's, you know, that's really who's behind all this, right? It's not the Venezuelan people, it's the U.S. government. So they're the ones who would be in the position to know what exactly Juan Guaido is, but they can't even seem to make up their mind, right? They say he's the interim president of Venezuela, and yet here they are in March jetting down to Caracas, where uh, Nicolas Maduro, the legitimate president, holds power, uh, not to Miami, you know, not to not to Colombia. They are going to Venezuela and, and meeting, uh, you know, send a, del a del high level delegation to meet uh, with the actual Venezuelan presidency. Um, so, you know, they say one thing and then they do very much another thing. They didn't even invite. Uh, White O to their little summit of the Americans. They're very sparsely right. attended uh, joint. They said, you know, we're going to invite some people from his team, but we're not even going to invite this guy. So, you know, what kind of signal does that send? Uh, you know, they they were just saying the only people that were, you know, we're not we're not going to invite fake presidents or whatever. Well, what does that say if you're not inviting White O? Uh, but. Uh, I mean, it's all part of this this kind of farce that's just I mean, it was it was ludicrous when they started it. And it's only gotten more absurd since then. And a number of 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 Western countries have slowly sort of tried to walk back and, you know, re-recognize the actual uh, Venezuelan government. And you see European oil companies, Repsol, uh, an Italian uh, oil giant uh, as well, that are are very much keen to do business with the actual government of Venezuela, not with the Juan Guaido clown show. And let's talk about some of America's. We had Jamal Thomas reporting from L.A. on the summit. And famously, the U.S. chose not to invite Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. And because they didn't invite those countries, countries like Mexico and uh, who else? Who else didn't go? Bolivia, Mexico, Honduras, Bolivia. Dominica. Yes. Uh, there's an, a number of countries that uh, they didn't even, you know, Guatemala. frankly. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, and frankly, I mean, it was a political masterstroke on the part of AMLO just to say, you know, just make this very, very reasonable statement and then let let these kind of imperialists in the State Department go crazy trying to think of how to counter it. And that statement was this, we think if it's not a summit for all of the countries in the Americas, then it's not really a summit of the Americas. And unfortunately, we won't be able to attend. And that's just a very simple, simple statement. And, and uh, says it all. And, you know, he has better things to do, frankly, than to go go to some sort of, you know, puppet show to some to some group of you know we we're allowed to be here and frankly that turned the tide in in the in the whole region and gave uh political cover to people 
uh, like uh, Bolivia's President Luis Arce, Honduras's President Xiomara Castro, to jump out and say, well, you know, uh, we are uh, frankly of the same mind that, you know, we'd like, we'd love to be able to dialogue with the rest of the Americas, but that doesn't seem to be what the summit is going to be. Um, and even for those who did end up meeting um, with Biden, they basically got to like extort different concessions out of him. It was just a total reversal of the, the traditional U.S.-Latin America relationship, where all of a sudden you have uh, Argentine President Alberto Fernandez um, and Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro basically saying, well, we'll only go if you give us a one-on-one -on -one meeting. And Bolsonaro even said to Biden, you're not allowed to publicly criticize me. You can't say a single mean thing about me the whole time I'm up here. Uh, and that's my condition <laughs> for going. This is what, according to three members of his cabinet, um, well, you know, it's just unheard of. And, and, and Biden is getting played like kind of a doddering fool, which, you know, draw your own conclusions yes. there. And Wyatt, it seems to me that we've entered a new phase in U.S. Latin America foreign policy, because even during the classic first Cold War in the 50s and 60s, we were at odds with Cuba, but we did not say Fidel Castro is not running Cuba. In fact, he's being run by a magical frog named Senor Ribbit. <laughs> you, see, you see my point? That would have been an awesome position. <laughs> that, if, that, yeah, that didn't happen. I mean, yeah. Our fan, our position now is based his... on right. It's based on complete fantasy it's... and ignoring reality. It seems to me, Wyatt. What say you? Well, yeah, they at least had. It's it felt like some some level of respect, or just a basic level of respect for our intellect, to where they're not gonna piss on our head and tell us it's raining. Um, but you know that that kind of facade seems to be gone now there's just it's full on just make believe world where if we decide it so it is and we'll get all the media uh you know hacks to jump along and to applaud like the trained seals that they are and it doesn't matter what the x y or z population actually thinks about what we want what we want for them um you know if, if they're uh, if they are not going along with the show, then, you know, for the good of their people, we must protect them from themselves and get rid of their tyrant leader. Uh, and it's the same sort of playbook that you see. Are you in Mexico on the way down to Colombia? What's, what's your travel schedule? I am, yes. I'm, I'm headed to Colombia to cover the second round of this next election here. Uh, that is this Sunday, the 19th, the second round of Colombia's presidential election, and I will be down there uh, for a bit, and maybe we'll see there are some really significant protests happening in Ecuador, just across the border in Quito, and ac all across the country. The city, the country is basically being shut down by large uh, indigenous mobilizations who are had it with their neoliberal government, um, and they just arrested, you know, the leader of the... In Ecuador's largest indigenous confederation last night and whisked him away to a, uh, one of the country's most dangerous prisons. And the country's kind of uh, having a, a, a bit of, uh, uh, let's say, uh, it's, it's, it's having a time right now. Uh, we'll, we'll leave it there. But uh, if that continues, then I will probably be going to cover that as well after the Colombian election. Uh, we'll have to see how that shakes out, though. Now, while you've been in Mexico, you're a news hound. I, I expect you watch some news in a hotel 
something like that? Have you caught any local news in the short time we've been in Mexico? I'm curious about how the news in Mexico is covering like the summit of the Americas or any stuff about America. Have you had any sense of that while you've been in Mexico? Yeah, so I mean, news in Mexico, even whether you're, even if you're on Twitter, you know, it's still the same kind of people running the algorithms, the same kind of people that are behind the news. So they all hate AMLO, just, you know, by and large, basically most of the, the mainstream media here hates AMLO. Um, you'll go read a little Twitter thread, you know, you know, that Twitter pops up or suggests to you, or you'll you read an article in a mainstream newspaper and it's all full of just, you know, the U.S. puppets, the NGO types, um, different former, you know, past past members of government from back when it was basically just an extension of the drug cartels. Um, you'll, you'll see all these people's commentaries, and they all have different issues, and lots of them have become um, environmentalists over the past four years. You know, all these people behind these hyper-polluting companies all of a sudden decided, you know, when AMLO proposes a couple infrastructure projects, they they just like, you know, break out the Birkenstocks and they're, you know, just like ready to go and protest. Um, so we, 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 you're very much, you know, no matter where you go in Latin America, you're still dealing with the same kind of media dynamic, which is that basically any president who wants to break free from the U.S. orbit is going to be hounded and hounded and attacked nonstop in the media um, from frequently totally contradictory angles. Um, but you know, I, I guess to give you a taste, uh, you know, recently there's been this Maya train uh, development that's aimed at going um, through uh, some areas uh, of, of southern Mexico that um, some of them have some environmental uh, status in some ways. But this is basically uh, prompted just this, you know, this the same kind of stuff that happened in Bolivia before they overthrew Evo Morales, when all these, you know, um, massive landowners who'd been, <clears throat> who were the the country's biggest polluters, all of a sudden decided that they were environmentalists um, three months before Evo was overthrown, and they could they could blame fires in the Amazon on him. Um, it's basically the same kind of thing that is happening in Mexico now. We get, yeah, the same the same nefarious actors drawing this from the same playbook, it, it seems. Um, so, yeah, pretty much anywhere you go, you see the same stuff, the same Open Societies Foundation-funded NGOs, same Bill Gates-funded NGOs doing, you know, the fact-checking. It's 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 the same everywhere you go. I'll, I'll leave it there. Well, and do you put some of that at the neoliberal establishment that runs things in America? They talk a lot about protecting the rights of brown and black people. But I take it when you're down south, someplace where the streets are full of brown and black people, do they get the sense that the neoliberals in D.C. really care about them? Do you get that sense, Wyatt? If, if, if those people exist here, I have not met them. I'm sure there is a small grouping, you know, in well, uh, you know, in the A.C., uh, high-rise office buildings at the center of a handful of cities. I'm sure there's a small grouping of people that are very grateful for what the liberal elite, uh, you know, NGO class in the United States does for their country. Outside of that, most people, um, you know, who are aware that they exist 
tend to resent those people. They tend to view them as outsiders who are meddling in their country's affairs for various political reasons. Um, and generally, people don't appreciate that kind of thing, and they don't appreciate it, especially when it's you know un- opaque funding. They don't really understand what what they're hearing or why. Uh, they just know that they're being introduced to you know young hip urban concepts that um, you know many in many cases sound wonderful or sound totally fine, but uh, often involve changing their lives in significant ways. Um, and you know, absent a good explanation for why that's happening, yeah, people tend to resent it. Um, they tend to assume there's uh, something not quite on the up and up happening, and frequently they're 100% right. Uh, you know, generally speaking, people don't just go. You know, people who got fabulously wealthy exploiting others, especially, don't spend their free time going around and trying to. Uh, help people out of the goodness of their heart. Uh, they generally do spend their time trying to gain more benefits for themselves, acquire further wealth, acquire further power and further control. Um, and you know that's that's it's a serious problem in many ways for a government, um, not just like the Mexican government, but for uh, Bolivian government or the Honduran government or any country where people are kind of taking their country back from these U.S puppet governments or these neoliberal administrations that were supported for a long time by the U.S., um, is they find, uh, you know, now they have the levers of state power, but they don't have this sort of civic society institutional power on their side. Um, And that's important because those people really do end up controlling a significant portion of a given country's uh, sort of intellectual capacity. Um, and they end up funneling all the, you know, the best and the brightest into their little scholarship programs and trying to get them to, to keep, you know, this kind of way of thinking going. Um, and so unless these governments that are trying to break free, break away towards their own sort of, uh, you know, nationalism for their people, then as opposed to some kind of global uh, program that, that is benefiting these international elites, um, they 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 basically have to start from scratch, you know, and they have to create their own alternatives to these kinds of things because otherwise, uh, you know, there's only so much you can do at the end of the day if uh, all these all these people that are supposed to be your thought leaders are having uh, having their meals paid for by somebody in Washington or New York. And Jason, do you have any questions for why Reed? Uh, I mean, it just sounds like that whole area is experiencing so much unrest. And you know what I did want to say is to be fair because a lot of times lee people accuse you and i of not you necessarily but you know maybe me being on one side of a story i think it's important that we acknowledge that this uh propping up of juan guaido began under donald trump yes uh, agreed yes it was very disappointing to me uh, that yeah. the, the trump administration I'll yeah, say go, go ahead why there is there is a lot of uh, anger over that, you know, and, and among the people that I come into contact, uh, especially, um, but there's also kind of an appreciation for the way that even unwittingly Trump really lifted the mask on just kind of the U S relationship with Latin America. Historically, they basically just said out in the open, you know, we're going to come and overthrow your government because we don't like you and we want to take your oil. And that's, 
kind of how it's always been. Um, you know, the Democrats are a little bit better at hiding it, but end of the day, they still have the same plan. And really their anger at Trump wasn't that he did it at all. It was that he did it so obviously and unsuccessfully. Right. So, you know, <laughs> to, to me, you know, and, and to people, to people in Mexico too, uh, AMLO had a pretty good relationship with Trump and a lot of, a lot of presidents in the world had significantly better relationships with Trump than they do with Biden. Um, and, you know, from AMLO's perspective, it was kind of just like, well, you know, let's, let's just get along, you know? And I think that's how a lot of people uh, in Latin America kind of felt about Trump, which is, you know, they don't necessarily like think he's the spawn of Satan. They just kind of want to get along with whoever is in charge up there. And if that means, you know, making X, Y, or Z agreement, well, you know, so be it if it's in the interest of our people. Um, and I think they felt in some way they got a little bit more of an honest broker with with Trump because, you know, what you saw is what you got for the most part. And he didn't make his his uh, hatred of, of Venezuela secret at all. You know, he made, he made it very clear, like, what he was up to and what he was willing to do. And, you know, frankly— it, I, I think at the end of the day, he really just thought it would be easier to overthrow Maduro and he would get a big boost in Florida for it. Um, I don't really even, you know, I, I think he kind of just thought it would be something to do well, in and, some ways. And Wyatt, does that go along with something I've noticed, and this may be controversial, so feel free to push back on it, but I think Hugo Chavez, AMLO, and Bolsonaro, even though they have very different ideologies, are seen as fiercely independent and slightly fighters. Does that make sense? Right, exactly. And, and, and their popularity is derived um, in large part from this perception that they're willing to stand up for their people um, against you know, international forces that seek to subvert the country and, and the population. And so, yeah, no, I mean, and that was kind of the big moment that uh, really, I think people will look back on this summit as representing was just, um, regardless of what part of the political divide uh, each of these leaders throughout Latin America found themselves on, at the end of the day, they viewed this summit as a chance to break free of the U.S. orbit and to regain some autonomy. And, uh, and why, especially for Mexico, when, that's a when huge deal. Be, we're almost out of time, Wyatt. When are you going to be down in Colombia? I will be down there here in a few days, I believe, on the 16th I'm heading there. So catch me on Friday if uh, you're able to have me on. We'll do a preview for the Colombian elections and maybe hit the results on Monday. That would be great, Wyatt. Always a good conversation. Wyatt Reed, Splendid Correspondent. Thanks so much for joining us. Jason Goodman, our guest co-host, doing an admirable job. As once again, Al Killer said earlier Jason does a great job as a guest host. And Mark Sabone in the first hour. Thanks so much to all our callers, too. We'll be back on the backstory tomorrow.